The following audio is from a sermon series entitled, The Revelation of Jesus Christ. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Revelation chapter 12. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you with great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. This is the word of the Lord. Welcome to Sacred City Church. We are excited that you are worshiping with us this morning. Um, My name is Alex Arguella, one of the pastors here. I am one of our lay pastors, lay elders, um, which means this isn't my full-time gig. That is chiropractic and and health coaching. Um, I tried, because we're coming up on the new year, to take a break from Revelation and take this time to just give an inspirational speech about having your best life and getting healthy and making 2019 your greatest year, but that was denied by the elders. They don't want me talking about health anymore after I tried to get everybody to eat liver last time. They said no more of that. But if I'm honest, 
I would be much more comfortable up here talking about that type of stuff. I've done that for 10 years. This preaching stuff is still pretty new for me, so this isn't the most calm environment for me to be up here. My mom got me this nice new sweater, and I've already done a little bit of damage to it this morning. But here's something that I've noticed. Many of you seem a little bit more calm when I'm up here, and the other preacher man is not. I don't know why. If you know me, it might be because you know I'm not going to freak out about the lights, right? <laughs> not going to call you out if you get up to go to the bathroom. I'm a much more cool cat, laid back type of guy. And the reason I wouldn't do that is because that would be very uncomfortable for me, right? Saying that to any of you would bring conflict, and that's not something that I'm a fan of. That's not something that I like to step into. And I'm sure some of you are similar to me in that way. But if we look at our text today, it doesn't bode well for us. Christians cannot avoid conflict. We're in it. It's unavoidable. We get to look at a text today where God unveils this great spiritual conflict that has been taking place since the beginning of redemptive history. It's something that has been behind the scenes, we might say, although it's mentioned by many of the biblical authors, but unless you've studied it specifically, you may have missed its impact. It is at the same time extremely horrifying, but also something that is for our good and for God's glory. The spiritual conflict we learn today gives us at least part of the answer to some of the questions that many Christians have. Why do so many Christians go hungry? Why are some homeless? Why are some persecuted by their governments like those in China are going through? Why do so many struggle with pornography, alcohol, drugs, gambling? Why are so many Christian marriages failing? Why are so many churches failing? Why is much of the church marred by disagreements? Why do more and more churches give up orthodox doctrines? Why do so many seem to grow a mile wide but an inch deep? Why do so many pastors fail morally? So many Christians fail to be on mission, give generously, make disciples, work together to plant churches and renew the world. Well, there are really four reasons underneath all of this. And I think we talk quite often at Sacred City, rightfully so, about three of them. Number one, God's sovereignty. God being in control of all things can allow and sometimes even directly bring trials into our lives. Number two, we are in a fallen world, right? Revelation is about making all things new. Well, some things are not new yet, so we can still suffer. Number three, we are still capable of sin. We're prideful, self-centered, unbelieving people, which plays a part in much of the evil in this world. We know these things, we think about them, we talk about them, but today we get to talk about the last one. The spiritual conflict that I mentioned before is between God and those who worship him and follow him on one side, and Satan, and those who follow him on the other. This conflict is a huge piece to what was behind the persecution that John's original audience were experiencing, as well as the persecution that's happened to Christians throughout history, including what we are going through now. If we remember, Revelation is a letter to John, a letter from John that was written to churches, churches that were being persecuted, churches that needed to be encouraged to persevere. We need that same encouragement. If we are going to live the life that God has called us to live, 
we need this text today. Here's where I want to go. How do we prepare ourselves and persevere in this conflict? What do we need to know and do? To get there, I'm going to try to show us four points from this passage. I know three points is much cooler, but I, want to, I have four. So that's what we're going to do. So let's pray and then we'll go. Father, it is you who we want to worship today. It is you who we want to hear from. So would you use me, Lord? Would you use my mind? Would you use my mouth? Would you make loud the words that I have that are from you? And would you quiet the words that are not? Would you be with our ears as well? Would you help us to hear what you want us to hear today? What you want us to hear today that will point us to Jesus, that will point us to him as the victor, that will point us to him who's the one that has defeated our enemy, Lord. That's what we want to know today, Lord. So it's in your name we pray. Amen. So Revelation 12. Many theologians believe it's the key chapter of the book. It has been understood. It has to be understood in order for the rest of the book to make sense. It also starts a new vision, a first of a series of visions that we're going to see in the next few chapters. So let's start with what's considered the first scene of this vision. And we'll see our first point for today. The first thing is to recognize the battle that we are in. This should be on the screen here, but we also have Bibles in the aisles if you do not have your own today. But let's start in verse 1. And a great sign appeared in heaven. This beginning lets us know that John is seeing a new vision. He's left the previous one. He's now to a new one. But what was the sign? A woman clothed with the sun with the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of 12 stars. What in the world is going on here? This isn't just a woman wearing a bright orange dress, a star-filled crown, and some moon boots. Who is this? Who this woman is has been a topic of much controversy throughout history. Some think it's Eve. Roman Catholics think it's Mary. Some cults have claimed her as their own. But more probable what John sees is not actually a physical woman at all. This is one of those times, like Pastor Justin talked about last week, where we don't want to interpret literally. In order to know what John is describing here, like all of the imagery he uses in this letter, we have to know other parts of the Bible. One of the most common ways the Old Testament refers to the people of God was as a woman, daughter of Zion, mother Israel, the New Testament does this as well. Paul refers to spiritual Jerusalem as our mother in Galatians 4. The church is the bride of Christ in Ephesians 5. John's original audience would have been very familiar with this type of imagery. So we can confidently say that the woman that John sees is the covenant community of God. Israel from the Old Testament, the church from the New Testament combined. His description of the woman more than likely is also an image from the Old Testament. In Genesis 37, Joseph, one of the sons of Jacob, had a dream. And in that dream, he saw a sun, a moon, and 11 stars bowing to him. The dream's interpretation had Jacob as the sun, Rachel as the moon, and their sons as the stars. Combine all of those, and you have the people that started the nation of Israel. God's chosen people. So again, John is using this imagery to represent the people of God. Let's continue in verse 2. 
She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. This here is a summary of Israel's history. From the oppression they were under in Egypt, to the pains of living in the wilderness, to the times of the judges, kings, and prophets, to the 400 years where God was not speaking to them, they have been waiting for the blessing of God to be rescued from evil and oppression, and specifically for much of their history, what they were waiting for was a rescuer. Isaiah 26, 17 says, like a pregnant woman who writhes and cries out in her pangs, when she is near to giving birth, so were we because of you, O Lord. John uses this imagery of a woman giving birth to show the trials and struggles that God's people have been through while also showing that their times of pain and oppression have a time limit. My wife, Emily, is about to give birth in about a week. I told her that I wouldn't shave until the baby's here. I usually look much better than I do today. But like most pregnant women, she's been pretty uncomfortable at times during this pregnancy, more so now as we're getting closer to the delivery. But in those times of being uncomfortable and hating life to some degree, What can bring her comfort in the moment is remembering that this feeling isn't going to be here forever. Babies come out eventually. The same is true for God's people. Their time of suffering will come to an end because from them will come a rescuer. So the people of God are the first part of John's vision. In verse 3, we get to the other side of the spiritual battle. And another sign appeared in heaven... Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. We have to do less interpretation for this character, right? Because John, we see in, later in verse 9, tells us who the dragon is. And he, sa- he says here, And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who was called the devil and Satan. His description, really quickly, red symbolizes blood and death. Seven heads symbolizes his wisdom and craftiness. Ten horns, his power. And seven diadems, which are crowns, symbolizes his rule over the fallen world. So there lays out the two sides of this conflict. We are familiar with God's people. I don't know how familiar we are with the other side. But our enemy is real. He is powerful. And not something to be taken lightly. Which maybe is the case for some of us. I know there are some Christians out there that put far too much weight on the devil to the point that they forget about the other three means to suffering that I mentioned before. But I think in our culture that has been so influenced by scientism and empiricism, most of the Christians in our culture take the spiritual evil in this world that is led by Satan far too lightly. It's just not something we think about. And if we do think about it, it's uncomfortable. For me, no matter how much I read of it, study it, And know it in my head to be true. Every time someone wants to bring up Satan or the demonic in everyday conversation, my weirdo radar goes off. I can't wait to change the subject. I've literally been in prayer time at Missional Community, and someone starts to pray against demonic powers, demonic forces, and I find myself thinking, oh man, this is uncomfortable. Please move on. Please move on. Why is that? We've been highly influenced by the culture we live in. 
If we can't see it, it's tough to believe. If we can't prove it with hard data, it must not be real. Here's what we have to admit. That way of thinking is anti-Christian. It's not biblical. Revelation 12 clearly shows that. And I pray that Revelation 12, as we study it, can bring us to confessing our unbelief, turning from those lies and asking the Spirit to drill these truths down into our hearts. Yes, we can't see, smell, feel the devil and his demons. We don't see them in, in their acts on the news or in our news feed, so it's hard for them to be on our minds. But what God is doing through John here is putting them on blast. He's revealing them. He's giving us the scouting report, the briefing on our enemy. Will we open our eyes and ears to see and hear it? Will we be prepared for the battle we are in by knowing our enemy and recognizing the conflict? The devil doesn't want us to persevere in our faith. He wants us to doubt. He wants us to be lukewarm. His desire is for us to move away, our worship away from God. Verse 4 gives us an example of how he works. Continuing to describe his vision, John says, his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. Now, if you have studied what the Bible says about Satan, you might be thinking about him as an angel who rebelled against God, so he was casted out of heaven along with a third of the angels. That could be what is happening here, but more than likely, that is not what John is referring to. What most scholars believe is that this was John, again, pulling from the Old Testament, where Daniel, in the eighth chapter of his book, describes a horn, a horn that symbolized evil and an evil kingdom. He describes the horn as growing, symbolizing the growth of the devastation that was being brought to God's people by this evil. Daniel writes that the horn grew even to the host of heaven. Daniel was prophesying an attack on Israel by a man named Antiochus, Epiphanes. He was persecuting the Jews around 200 BC. This shows us how the spiritual can affect the physical. One of the ways the devil, who is a spiritual being, works is he, he uses evil men who are physical, like Antiochus Epiphanes, to bring destruction to God's people. And his intention is that the damage that he causes would be so vast that it would be felt even up into heaven. He wants to kill, steal, and destroy, the Bible says. He is opposed to anything God is for. We see that very, very clearly as this verse continues. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. John again here goes back to the Old Testament, specifically Genesis 3 but also with the verse describes how the devil has been involved in the story of God throughout time. If we remember in Genesis 3, after the fall of our first parents, God gave out a few curses. The first curse was toward the evil serpent because he tempted Eve into sin. The curse went like this, because you have done this, cursed are you. I will put enmity between you and the woman, the spiritual conflict that we need to recognize today. And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In John's vision here in Revelation, that evil serpent is now a great dragon. And throughout history, knowing the curse that was put on him, this dragon has done his best to try and beat the curse by devouring the offspring of the woman. 
Eve's first offspring, Abel, is killed when the devil stirs up his brother Cain into jealousy and anger. He tries to prevent the deliverance of Egypt out of slavery by stirring up Pharaoh to order the killing of, of the males as soon as they were born, which could have taken out Moses. He uses Saul to try to kill David because he knows David's future grandson, who that will be. He uses Herod when Jesus is born to try to take out the newborn king. He has always been about trying to find this offspring that was going to put an end to him. But just like the woman in labor, she's going from significant pain to absolute joy once her baby is out. So goes this passage. Satan is shown as powerful, as evil, and after the child, all dark and painful realities. But then in verse five, we see this. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Satan failed at his goal. For us to see the awesomeness of that verse, we have to remember the context here. John's readers are struggling, being persecuted for their faith. Some of them were burned alive. Some of them were beheaded. They were enslaved. And he knows they need hope. They need to know that their pain is going to come to an end. But what does he tell them? He doesn't look forward yet. He doesn't say, just hold on, a savior is coming. He says, look back. What you need has already happened. Remember, our God told us that we would be in a battle. Our God told us that we would have an enemy and we would, that we would have to suffer. But he also told us that there's a seed, a seed that's going to change the fate of the universe. The seed is this male child a child that would not only overthrow Rome, the nation that was persecuting them, but every nation the seed will have power over, including any spiritual kingdom, any spiritual nation. This is why the devil has went to great lengths to try to destroy him. John wants his readers to remember and recognize that yes, they are in a spiritual battle. Yes, we are in a spiritual battle, but they and we are not without hope. Our rescuer in this battle that we are in is with us. He has come. That brings us to our second point. The second thing we need to see is Christ is the victor and Satan is defeated. For this, we're going to jump to verse seven. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon and the dragon, his angels fought back. This is pretty amazing. I'm not sure where your head goes, but my head goes to this huge war, like something out of the Lord of the Rings, where these horrifying beasts are fighting against these beautiful, majestic, but warrior-like angels. Maybe that's what's going on, but I don't think it's the main point here, and probably trees instead of the forest. The important thing here is what we see in verse 8. But he, Satan, was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. Now, what's going on here? Very simply, the outcome of the great spiritual battle has been decided. If you are like me, you probably want to know all about this Michael character, what exactly happened, that him and the angels defeated Satan and the demons. But again, we want to stay out of the trees. We've already seen how something spiritual like Satan can affect the physical world back in verse 4. Well, here we see how something physical can affect the spiritual world. It wasn't that Michael and his angels finally imposed their will on the dark side and won 
And as we read in verse 9, threw the devils and the demons out of heaven. To know what really happened here, what gave the angels ultimate victory, we have to go back to verse 5. The piece of verse 5 that we haven't talked about yet is what sealed the deal. Let's read it. But her child, the seed, remember the seed that would bruise, that would crush the head of the serpent, the serpent that would become the dragon, that seed was caught up to God and to his throne. Remember, John is seeing this vision, and much of this vision is a replay of things that have already happened. What he's describing here in this verse is what we know as the gospel. The seed is Jesus. The child is Jesus. And as we know and just celebrated, Jesus came to earth as a child and then lived a perfect life. And in that life, won battles over Satan numerous times. He outlasted Satan in the wilderness where he was tempted. He casted out demons during his ministry. He built an army of people to follow him and taking them away from following the God of this world who Satan is called. Maybe while all this was happening on earth, at the same time in this battle in heaven, demons were being defeated by the angels. Don't think we know, but what we do know is Christ's final blow to the devil What resulted in the devil losing his place in heaven was when Jesus willingly went to the cross, died, and was buried. My guess when this happened was the devil and his angels started cheering in this battle in heaven, thinking that the seed that would bring them ultimate defeat was finally finished. But on the third day, Jesus rose again. He was resurrected by the power of the Holy Spirit and then ascended into heaven where, like we read in verse 5, he was caught up to God and to his throne. The person and work of Jesus is who and what defeated the devil. The physical reality determined a spiritual outcome. After John sees part of his, this part of the vision, he then hears, hears good news being proclaimed in heaven. Verse 10, And I heard a loud voice in heaven, These are the people in heaven that have been waiting for that victory that had just happened. Saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of Christ have come. God's plan of salvation has been carried out. His power has been shown. The kingdom of God has been inaugurated and Christ is now ruling and reigning in heaven. He has done what he has been sent here to do. He's defeated sin, death, and the devil. The devil is the loser. He's been defeated. All great news. But what's that mean for us? We live in a time where it doesn't seem like the devil's been defeated. It doesn't seem like that's great news. We live in a time where being the people of God, we don't feel victorious. We still hurt. We still struggle. We still feel tempted to think and say and do things that are not Christ-like. Here's why. Yes, Christ is the victor. Satan has been defeated, but he's not been destroyed. Christ has been caught up to God, but we are still here. History tells us in the Second World War, the Allied forces actually won the war on D-Day in Normandy, France. They dealt decisive blows to Hitler's army to the extent that there was no longer any doubt to who was going to be victorious in this war. Many of the German generals tried to convince Hitler to surrender at this time, but he would not. 
His pride caused him to continue to fight the losing battle. And it wasn't until around a year later on V-Day that the war was considered over. If Hitler wasn't going to win, he wanted to bring as much damage to his enemy as possible before his death. In John's vision, we see a similar story being told. Let's keep reading. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. There's some important stuff in there, but we'll get back to that. But for now, again, Satan has been defeated. Verse 12, therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. This would be like the media at the time of World War II who would have been saying to the people back in the United States after D-Day, celebrate, we've won the war. Hitler won't accomplish his goal of taking over the world, taking control. But for the soldiers that were still in the war, they weren't home yet and away from danger. So we read here, but woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows this time, his time is short. Here we see something's changed about the devil. He's always been about killing, stealing, and destroying. But since he's been thrown out of heaven, since Christ has secured victory over him, he's pissed. Can I say that? He's ticked. Maybe that's better. But I've been here before. I felt what the devil's feeling, not to the extent that he feels it, of course, but I can remember during my years of sports when I would, tur- when I would turn, <clears throat> when the outcome of the game was already decided and I was an idiot, thought I was much tougher than I was, if I couldn't win the game, my thoughts would go to, how can I inflict as much pain on my opponent as possible with the time that I have left. A dirty hit in football, an illegal slide tackle in soccer, a fastball to the head of a batter, an elbow that the ref couldn't see on the basketball court. I did it all. Evidence of fallen man being connected to the devil and his ways if we are not in Christ. I was not a good example to follow as an athlete, but the danger that I brought to my opponents is nothing compared to what the devil wants to bring to God's people. He wants to ruin us, and we have no hope in ourselves against his power. But we can remember that Christ, our living hope that we sang about, is the victor, and Satan is defeated. And we can also recognize our next point, which is God protects his people. We see this in verse 6. But again, we'll see it plays out in the last scene of this passage in verses 13 through 17. But let's read verse 6 first. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. This woman goes into what John describes as the wilderness. Again, Old Testament imagery, the wilderness back in the story of Exodus was where God's people went after being delivered from Egypt. It was a time when God's people experienced trials, but also God's protection, providence, mercy, grace, love, anything that God is about. So what John is wanting us to see is God's people, the original audience as well as us, have a place prepared for them during this time of being with the devil and his demons. This space is where they can go to experience God's 
nourishment, God's protection, his providence. God is their father, we might say. Now, we might hear that and think, oh, great, that's cool. Glad God's looking out. And then think we can just go and live our lives however we want because if God is for us, who can be against us, right? If that is our thought, we maybe missed something from that verse. What does the woman do? Does she stick around and see if she can pet the dragon? Does she put on her armor and grab a sword and try to slay him? She flees. She runs to God's place of nourishment. She runs to the place where she can experience God's and his protection. What would this be for God's people today? The church. The church is where God's blessing is found and experienced. The church is who the bride of Christ, who the apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians is who Christ loves and gave himself up for that he might sanctify her and present her to himself one day in splendor. God's protection from the devil is this group of people who have put their faith in Jesus, who have been given the Holy Spirit, who have been united with Christ and now are a family of missionary servants learning to live life together for the glory of God. Can I ask you, Christian, is that what you have run to? Are you living life in community and on mission centered on the gospel? Or are you on your own, hoping our enemy forgets about you? Or maybe you can just be protected by reading your Bible or attending some church services. If so, I pray that you will hear and believe what John shows us here. God has nourishment for you in his church. Not that being part of the church makes all of life roses and rainbows. Any Christian knows if they've been part of the church for any amount of time that there's much persecution, trials, sufferings that can be found and experienced here as well. The text says that this place of refuge for the woman was prepared by God, and it was where God will nourish them for 1,260 days. We've seen similar descriptions of time, and we'll see them again. This number symbolizes the church age, the time between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. This means that the church is the place of nourishment and protection from the enemy until Christ comes back. Protection we need, because just like the soldiers still fighting in World War II, even after victory has been decided, which it has been, the enemy can still come after us. We continue to see this in the third scene of our text. Verse 13, and when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The devil missed his opportunity to stop the rescuer from coming, from being brought up to be with God, so now he's after the woman. He's after the church. The verse says that he pursued the woman. Evil's not passive. Church, we are not protected from evil as long as we stay away from bad things. As long as we don't hang out with the rough crowds, don't go into the rough neighborhoods, don't go into the adult movie stores, don't go to Las Vegas. I'm not saying that all of that is not helpful, but remember the spiritual conflict is being brought to us. Why do you think so many people 
still struggle so much with addictions, struggle so much with trying to save their marriages? Why do we struggle so much with pride and turning from our sins? Even believers that aren't out on their own, believers that are in our missional communities and desire to grow in grace and live for the glory of God, they hate sin, they love Jesus. Even if that's where we are at, we can still be deep in this difficult battle. This is the case because yes, we live in a fallen world. Yes, we are still sinful people, but we also have an enemy who's after us right now as we speak wanting us to stay in our sin, wanting us to keep blaming God for our circumstances and not see him as good, wanting us to continue to have Jesus as just another thing on our long list of things we like in this life instead of having Jesus as the Lord of our life. The point we want to see here is that God protects his people in this church age, but that point doesn't really hold weight if we don't understand the main one that he's protecting us from we first have to remember our enemy and that persecution, temptation, in times of losing the battle to sin will come. But we also have to remember who it is that's protecting us. Verse 14, but the woman was given the two wings of great, the great eagle so she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and a half a time just as in the Exodus where God brought them out of slavery in, on eagles' wings, that imagery we see here as well. The devil pursues God's people, but his power, his ability to catch her is limited. Our enemy is not equal to our deliverer. This isn't a yin and yang type of conflict. Evil will not prevail. We will be protected. We will be nourished if we are in the wilderness and not out on our own. If we are here, if we are covenanted people of God, if we are part of the church where the spirit is present and Christ is our head, we will receive the nourishment that we need. The devil can try what he wants, but God will protect us. Verse 15, we see that the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with the flood. More imagery symbolizing and showing us that the devil's primary weapon of warfare he loves using his mouth. Just like the lie he told to our first parents that tempted him, them into sin, he loves to use his mouth against the people of God now, convincing them of false beliefs, convincing them that sin is not that big of a deal, convincing them that this life is about their glory and not God's. Even against this powerful weapon, though, God has us protected. In verse 16, we see, but the earth came to the help of the woman. And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured out from his mouth. God won't let the devil destroy the woman. God won't let the devil destroy the church. No matter how many times the devil has stirred up other religions or governments or atheistic movements, and it seems like the church will finally have her end, the church is sustained. We've seen this throughout history, even this, that at times when the devil puts his foot on the gas pedal and increases the persecution of God's people even more than his normal attempts, that's when the church gets stronger. That's when more people come to faith and more people's faith is revived. In verse 17, we see this, re this reality that he can't do anything to touch the church because God is protecting his church. Again, ticks the devil off. 
Then the dragon became furious with the woman, with God's people, and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood in the sand of the sea. We see that the devil will never quit. He couldn't stop the child. He can't destroy the woman. So he finally goes after the rest of her offspring, which is more than likely symbolizing his plan to go after individual Christians, the ones that keep the commandments of God and truly profess faith in Christ. He can't defeat the church as a whole, so he comes after individuals. This verse ends with him standing on the sand of the sea, getting ready to unleash the first of the beasts that we'll see in the next couple chapters, where we will see the pain and damage that he wants to bring to Christians. This brings us to our final point the last of our preparation and encouragement to persevere in this life. We've seen that we are in a battle and that our enemy has been defeated but not destroyed. Our enemy has seen that he can't come after the church because God is protecting the church, so he now turns to come after the individual Christians. Again, not something to take lightly, but our final point is this. Christians win through the blood of the lamb and a fearless faith. The last verse we need to look at is verse 11. And they, that's Christians, have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. This enemy that we have, this enemy that is now currently after us and will continue to be after us until we leave this earth or Christ returns, John says is conquered by Christ's blood, but also by our witness. If we take from what was said right before this in verse 10, I think we are supposed to see here a particular piece of what the blood of the lamb does for the Christian. And this truth will empower us to have a fearless faith. Verse 10 emphasizes Satan as the accuser. From the Old Testament, we see Satan loving to accuse God's people. We probably know the story of Job where Satan, allowed, where Satan was allowed to come before God and accuse Job of being faithful to God only because of how much God has blessed him. We also see in the book of Zechariah, a less familiar scene, where Joshua, the high priest, was standing before the angel of the Lord, clothed with filthy garments. This symbolized the vileness of God's people because of their sin and their idolatry. In the same vision, Satan is also there accusing Joshua of his sin before God, calling for his condemnation, calling for the condemnation of the people of God. That's what Satan does. Before Christ came, he did it in heaven before our God. He would stand before God and accuse God's people of their guilt. As, as it says here in verse 10, he would do that day and night. He would never stop. Stand before God, accuse God's people of their sin. The horrifying thing was, he was spot on. He wasn't a liar in this case. He had sufficient evidence that God's people were guilty of sin and deserving of eternal punishment. Think about that. Our enemy who hates us and wants to ruin us had a place in heaven. 
He could stand right next to the Father and accuse us. Because of this and because of our guilt, God had no choice but to carry out the punishment that his people deserved. But like the vision of Zechariah, where Jesus calls for the removal of Zechariah's filthy garments, the removal of the nation of Israel's filthy garments, and says, I will clothe you with clean vestments, which clears him of the accusations of Satan. When Jesus came and claimed victory over the devil, a victory that was not won by shedding the blood of the devil, but was won by shedding the blood of the lamb. When that happened, remember the devil no longer had a place in heaven. He was thrown out by Michael and the angels. But not only was he thrown out and lost his place in heaven, not only have God's people been cleared of Satan's accusations against them, but now his accusations can't even be brought before the father in heaven because someone has replaced him. The accuser was replaced by the interceder. The one that looks, he looks to God and says, look, look at the blood on their hands. They are guilty, has been defeated and replaced by the one that says, look at the scars on my hands that I took for them. They are not guilty. In order for us to persevere, in order for us to march on in this life, in the midst of the battle that we are in, that truth has to be fixed upon our minds and our hearts. Because of Christ, we are not guilty. We have been made right with God. That truth has to be known and believed. If this happens, if we are changed by that truth, if we are changed by the truth of the gospel, then it will stir up within us a fearless faith, a faith that we will share and show to the world around us and not deny no matter what comes at us, whether that be shaming, whether that be suffering, whether that be even death. Commentator Richard Phillips says Satan wants the news of his defeat to be kept as quiet as possible. He doesn't want the world to know that his kingdom has been overturned. He doesn't want the world to know that the kingdom of God is at hand. So he will deceive Christians into believing lies about God and about themselves. But God's primary strategy to fighting against the devil's plan is using his people to expose those lies and bring the good news of the gospel, not only to themselves, but to the ends of the world. People who without fear will push back the darkness and be the salt and light of the world. People who will go and make disciples, plant churches and renew the city for the glory of God. People who through the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony will conquer the enemy. Will we be those people? Let's pray. God, we do want to be those people. We want to do what you've called us to do, Lord. We want to live in this time where the enemy has been defeated, but he has not been destroyed. And we want to be a peace to what keeps his power at bay. As he speaks darkness into this world, we want to speak light into this world. As he comes after us and the people that don't know you yet, we want the people, the people that brings the gospel truths to both of those things, Lord. We want to 
preach the gospel to ourselves and we want to preach it to the ends of the earth, Lord, so that more people can know you, so that more people can turn from being, having their lives run by the God of this world and have it run by the true God of this world. We want people to be changed by you, Lord. We want people to, to follow Jesus, to lay down their lives, to step into the suffering of the here and now because we know that Jesus has suffered for us. Jesus has won victory over the grave. So our greatest fear in life, our greatest fear that we would have eternal damnation, that we would have eternal death, is no longer true because Jesus took that for us. And now he rules and reigns in heaven and he is our king and he's coming back. He's gonna come back to make all things new. He's gonna come back to make all things right. He's gonna come back to make all things perfect. And that includes us. So let us live like a people who know that truth and are changed by that truth for your glory. In Jesus' name.